Hi, this is Overshare. This is the podcast where no matter what the subject matter, it is a guarantee that I, Tiana, will overshare. Hello. Tiana, your host here, and my lovely co-host would be Jeffrey. Say hello, Jeffrey. Hey, guys. Yeah, he's going to be the worst, you guys. He's going to be the literally the worst sidekick for any podcast host ever. But he is all I have. That is the truth of the situation. It is quarantine. I am trapped in my house. I am trapped with my husband. I am trapped with my family. And so in exchange for me to actually do something that kept my mind out of the madness of this moment and for Jeffrey to support me in this task and be, you know, just a rambling voice in the background, I needed to barter with him. And the barter was that he could continue to play his video games and fly through outer space uninterrupted while being a supportive husband. So you are welcome, sweetie. Yay! There you go. It's all about compromise. It's all about compromise, you know? That's going to be a little bit what I'm going to talk about in this podcast. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I am not a particularly interesting person. And I mean, I hope that people around me in my life who immediately know me find me to be an interesting person. Don't get me wrong. But objectively, I am really not a very interesting person, nor do I necessarily have anything important to say. So this is my pitch. It's a good pitch for the podcast, right, Jeffrey? Oh, yeah. Um, I love video games. Okay, so we're off to a good start. It's a good start. I'm just going to have to be patient. Patience is important. Patience is practiced. At least it is for me. I know some people seem to be born with some kind of Buddha-like patience, but that is not me. <laughs> no, I've been practicing my whole life and I'm still not quite there. But it's hard to be patient. There are a lot of stressors in life, to be fair. In my life, there's the stressor of having three children. That's a lot of work. Yes, I know. I know those of you who know me are doing math right now. And you're thinking really hard and you're figuring out that I only have two children. But that is untrue. That is not factual. I have three children because Jeffrey. Hey, guys. Yeah, him. Don't forget. Don't forget him. That is very often the case, I believe, for us wives. Is that the father of our children is kind of like a, another unofficial child that we must care for. But that's part of the gig. It's part of the gig of motherhood, the part of the gig of parenting, taking care of the whole family, right? And that's a little bit about what I want to talk about in this podcast. I want to talk about parenting a little bit. I think we're qualified, right, Jeffrey, to talk a little bit about parenting? Sure. Kept them alive this far, right? They're yeah. St they're still kicking. We got some shit to say about that. So I'll talk a little bit about parenting. And I think one of the greatest things about having an overshare podcast is I don't have to worry about you coming into this and expecting for it to be like a totally comfortable situation. You are now prepared with the title of the podcast alone to be made uncomfortable. Also, if you know me and you have volunteered to listen to me for like half an hour, you know that you're probably going to be made to be like felt really uncomfortable. So you're welcome. You're welcome for my awkwardness. You're welcome for my lack of social awareness. That is what I will bring to this podcast. And hopefully you'll enjoy it. Because Lord knows, especially when it comes to subjects like parenting, there are a lot of myths and sort of fairy tale-esque, you know, guises around what the situation is going to be. People are getting a little bit better about trying to be honest about what parenting really is and everything that's involved in it. But there's still, there's still a veil it's, a, it's like a fairy tale veil is what it is. It's a fairy tale veil. That's definitely what it is. So 
the fairy tale veil definitely begins with the pregnancy process. I have to tell you guys. That is where it begins. People try to act like that is going to be the, one of the most beautiful times of your life. You are going to be bursting forward, glowing, radiant, with new life, growing inside of you like some kind of earth goddess. But it's really more like a lot of bloating and heartburn and sleepless nights and back pain and your boobs hurt a lot. So it's not quite as magical as they make it sound just so you guys are prepared. And I often find that women do try to kind of like prepare each other for the discomforts of pregnancy and all the discomforts of, you know, new motherhood, but often in like very weird, subtle, um, sometimes kind of passive aggressive ways, like through gifting. Gifting is a really great passive aggressive communication tool for women. So I don't know about any of you moms who are listening out there. I want you to think for just a moment about what your first gift of pregnancy was. What was the first gift someone gave you that was related to you becoming a mother? Was it like tiny little shoes, just adorable? Was it like a, a soft baby blanket or like a little outfit that you could picture the baby was going to wear? That must have been lovely. You want to know what my first gift of motherhood was? Nipple cream. <gasps> no, no, not sexy nipple cream. Not at all. Not... Sexy nipple cream at all. It was for pain. It was for terrible, terrible pain. Kind of nipple cream. And the best part about my gift was that it arrived anonymously. Yes. There is nothing quite as unsettling as receiving anonymous nipple cream. It's definitely up there with life's most unsettling situations. Because now the true question is, who sent the nipple cream? Who? Who did it? There are a lot of answers to that question. There are a lot of very disturbing answers to the already very disturbing question, who sent the nipple cream, right? It's a road you don't want to go down, my friend. And I had to go down that road. It was dark and scary. You're never going to ask people, hey, Betty, how you doing? So great. Pregnancy's going fantastic. Hey, did you send me nipple cream? It's a little awkward, right? You ask like the two people in your life you're comfortable enough to ask. And when they say no, you kind of have turned every stone at that point. Eventually, I did find out it was nothing strange or too terribly, like, awkward. It was just a fellow mom friend. She had just recently become a mother herself. And upon hearing my joyous news that I was bursting with new life, that I was soon to embark upon the journey of motherhood, her very first thought was of my nipples and the terrible, terrible pain that they were soon to undergo. And so to try to spare me from said pain that I'm guessing she now in her own oversharing way had let me know she had undergone, she wanted to spare me from that, right? She wanted to give me the thing that she wished somebody had just given her before she embarked on this thing, which was nipple cream. It was very generous, actually, when you think about it. It was very thoughtful of her to think of my nipples like that, but... um. I will say that for anybody out there listening who might want to partake in such a generous gesture, perhaps a note or like an explanation in the packing slip. If for no other reason than to just save your friend a lot of very stressful, sleepless nights wondering who sent them nipple cream. That's where it starts. That's how we start to have very, very awkward ways to share the magical, magical side effects of motherhood. 
pregnancy and motherhood and nursing. It's a real freak show, really. For all the beauty involved in it, it really is pretty much a freak show. Birthing, that is the peak freak show moment. 100% peak freak show moment. There's really not a whole lot about the birthing process that is magical or wonderful before the baby comes. All of that is just fucking work. That's what that is. And also terrifying. Especially in the case where with what we had with Jude, our first child, boy, that was an emergency C-section and that is a stressful experience. I will tell you that. Very stressful. Yeah. You didn't really have to do anything, Jeffrey. Oh. Yeah. I have to remind him about that sometimes because he gets a little emotional when he talks about the emergency C-section. He has to remember that he was not the one who actually got cut open. Um, But yes, that's, you know, one of the more disturbing ways for your baby to arrive if they're going to arrive healthy, safe, which is the first and foremost, most important thing. Well, the most terrifying way that they can safely arrive is definitely the emergency C-section. It's kind of a horrifying experience. Yeah, they literally just cut you open, like splice that baby right out of there. And then the best part about it is your very next round, they tell you that that's what they're going to do again. So you've had this like terrible emergency surgery experience and now you're, you're pregnant again and they tell you that's, we're just going to do that again. They say, actually, technically what they said was, we're going to cut along the dotted line. Say what? Yeah, I wish I was making that up. I'm not making that up. That is actually what they said. That is exactly what they said. See, he was there. He knows. He's my witness. Okay. It was fucked up. It wasn't a cool thing to say to me. I was not pleased to hear that takes a lot of autonomy away from women, I find, telling them that once they've had a C-section, they absolutely have to have another C-section. And I understand the risks in attempting, you know, a V-back. <gasps> that's right. Some of you might have known all about an emergency C-section, but the V-back, that's probably new mom terminology on you, isn't it? V-back. Vaginal birth after cesarean. And there are risks. I'm not going to disguise that. There are definitely risks. There's been a lot of cutting open of, you know, parts of your body, just sliced, big, long slice right across, horizontal, just, and now you're putting a shit ton of pressure on that so that you can try to give birth naturally. And it sometimes can go wrong. That's for sure. It depends on how well you've healed. That's a big factor, right? How long you're going to be in labor, how much, how much pushing is going to go on. There's all these different factors involved. And a lot of times, because doctors don't like these different factors, because basically those just scream risk to them, they just say, well, the lowest risk thing is to just cut you open and do the same thing for the next baby. But the thing is, they're not the one who's going to have to pay for that, A. And B, they're not the one who's going to have to recover from that, because the recovery is terrible. Terrible. It's like a good couple months of feeling absolutely awful, like you cannot really function without help from others. And I'd say you really don't feel back to your normal-ish self um, in your muscles and your healing until six months to a year, somewhere in that range. It's a long process after somebody's given you a C-section. So to tell you, oh, well, you don't really have a choice. We're just doing that again is stressful, I think, for women. I think that's kind of a bullshit. I call bullshit on that. So uh, we called bullshit on it at the time. And we found a doctor, even though it's kind of rare, who will do VBAC. And sure enough, I did that with Aiden and it went fantastically. I was very fortunate that mommy and baby both had a very easy, healthy experience. But I think doctors should at least give you a chance to try 
or present you with all of the risks and, uh, you know, have you sign whatever kind of waivers and paperwork for their own malpractice uh, protection, just so that you have the sense of choice over your body as a woman and how you're giving birth to your child. So I was thankful that we found a doctor who did that. And quite frankly, we were going through a lot of stress at that moment in our lives um, because at uh, six months pregnant with Aiden, our second child, I found out that our first child, Jude, has autism. He got diagnosed out in Los Angeles. Where, that's where we were living at the time. And so there was a lot of uh, planning and organizing and driving to various appointments through traffic. And it was definitely a relief to not have to have a really long healing process from a surgery after that. That was a huge, huge relief. And um, I have to say that the autism diagnosis process was something that was very interesting. I want to talk about that for just a minute because I have a lot of people ask me that question. Uh, even just in passing conversation, if it comes up that my son has autism, people will ask, oh, well, how did you get his diagnosis? How did you discover that he had autism? And um, I think it is a very great question to, to talk about and a good answer to put out there because it's informative, you know, and every, every child is different. Every child is different. Like they say, if you know one person with autism. You know one person with autism. That's exactly right. That's it. So remember and keep in mind that when I share Jude's stories, Jude is Jude, right? So he's going to share some stuff with Spectrum people and then he's going to be super individualistic on other things because that's how the autism spectrum works. So it started off when Jude was maybe only about six months old. I started to complain to his pediatrician that I was concerned he was not doing things that I was used to seeing babies do, as in social things like waving or clapping or playing peekaboo. Those were the three main ones that I never saw him do. And then it started to be things like, I realized by about a year old, he was doing things like he wasn't showing us his toys. You know, children, when they're little, they'll, they'll show you what they have in their hand, trying to get a reaction out of you. Oh, look at that toy. That's cool, buddy. That kind of a thing. Uh, nothing like that. He wasn't very big on the eye contact. Right. So I just felt like something was different about him. And every time I brought this up to the pediatrician, she would always say, oh, welcome to the range of normal. I wonder the fuck that was supposed to mean. And she would basically just tell me to wait and see. She was a wait and see doctor, as we I now know call them. Wait and see. Wait and see how your child develops. Just wait and see. Wait and see. One of my number one pieces of advice for any mother out there is if you think there's something going on with your child and you have a gut feeling about that, never let a doctor tell you wait and see. There is nothing that hurts in getting your child screened for anything. You think they have a vision problem, a hearing problem, you think they might be on the autism spectrum. What does it hurt to get them screened? It doesn't hurt at all. So never let a pediatrician, a doctor tell you, oh, just wait, just wait. Why? I could be helping my child right now by potentially figuring out that they have an issue early on and it would give them a leg up to help to navigate the world better with this issue right so you would think that would be logical but some doctors I don't know what is going on in their sad brain that they feel that they can't um just encourage you to get your child screened but that was the doctor we had at first eventually I got sick of her answer and I took him to another doctor in the same practice just different doctor and she said that he definitely needed to be screened for autism 100 percent and she gave me two different routes, told me that I would need to go through private insurance and told me that I would also need to go through the state. And so I did both those things. And, you know, within six months time, because it takes a long time, we had screenings for him and had him with his full diagnosis. Right. 
So that's the story of Jude being diagnosed with autism. It's definitely something that I like to tell because of the wait and see doctor part. Always trust your gut when it comes to your kids. If you feel like something's going on, if you feel like they need help because people aren't understanding something that's going on in their brain, then you need to just speak up for them because they're just a child, right? That's the whole point is you need to not let, sometimes doctors can be intimidating and you're like, oh, well, I guess you know better than me or a doctor and your child's not going to be the one to be like, hey, yo, that doctor's like, I call bullshit. I'm definitely not seeing the world the same way anybody else does. Like your child's just a child. He's just going to sit there and be like, "Mm, I really like this light switch. You know, so you have to be the one to advocate and be like, listen, there is clearly something wrong. And if you're not going to help me, then I will go to a doctor who will. That is my autism mom advice and general mom advice, really, for for this episode that I want to put out there. We did get Jude into services right away. He got into behavioral services and occupational and speech therapy and all different kinds of things like that, special schools. And he has been doing nothing but improving since he's been getting treatment. Nothing but improving with his social skills. It's been amazing to see. See, I kind of feel with autism like Jude is like an alien baby. He's from outer space. He's from Jude planet. Jude lives on Jude planet. Sweet. Yeah, it is pretty sweet. (laughs) Seems pretty cool there. And sometimes, you know, he has a timeshare here on Earth. He does own an Earth timeshare. And we can occasionally call to his attention that his presence is required here on earth with the other earthlings but that is my job that is my job is to teach my alien baby the customs of earth right because they aren't really intuitive to him things like waving and clapping and looking people in the eyes but i I do get that there are people i don't want to look at either right oh yeah there's lots of fuggos no that's god that's not what i was all right he's a straight cisgendered white male and he's literally all I have so we're going to take the comments that we take from him I meant more on an emotional basis Jeffrey yes that they are uh-huh that there are people that I might not want to look at either but you have to teach your child to function in these societal expectations right so that they can go to school and get jobs and do all these things in this kind of non-spectrum geared world And that is very much what Jude has been practicing and what he's getting better and better at. And it's pretty cool to to see his progress, to see how hard he works. And he's working really hard lately on his speech. All of a sudden, so he's about seven years old now, and all of a sudden, it's just been the speech, right? I mean, he talks so much now. He has, it's almost like getting to stop talking has become the issue at this point. He's just on a roll. He is on a roll. And one of the lovely joys of Jude learning to speak is that he is now fighting with his brother. Yeah. It's been a joy, hasn't it, Jeffrey? Oh, Oh, so great. Yeah. A real joy, the boy fights. So boy fights kind of sound something like this to start from the other room. And then all of a sudden it escalates into... And then you're like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden you can start to make out it's Jude being like, stop it! You make it stop it! Make it go away! And you're like, what the hell is going on? How could Aiden, who is four years old, possibly be doing something to Jude? And then you go in there and Jude's on top of Aiden, just smacking him in the face, going, stop it! Make it go away! So, he's fine. Although, in Jude's defense, Aiden can be very annoying. Very annoying. I pretty much have discovered that Aiden has spent his whole life observing how we and the behavioral therapists talk to Jude and how we work with him to 
get communication across. And he's decided he's going to employ that same tactic to communicate with his brother, which sometimes it's ingenious and he actually gets him to play with him. And sometimes it's annoying, annoying. It's like he's this off the clock behavioral therapist. He just follows Jude around the house like, hey, Jude, what's this? What's that? Want to play this activity? Want to play that activity? Hey, Jude, look at my eyes. 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 Where are my eyes, Jude? Where are my eyes? And we're like, stop it. Jude is off the clock. You leave him alone. So, you know, eventually at the end of the day when there's a scuffle and a kerfuffle and you find Jude on top of Aiden and he's just slapping him in the face going, stop it, make it go away. We kind of get it. Yeah. We've seen it. We know. We know why that's happening. Also, apparently this is a way that men learn to communicate in boyhood is fighting. Boy fights. Ah, boy fights. It's a thing. I remember boy fights in my house because Tiana grew up with only brothers and now I have only sons. So I am doomed to be surrounded by boys at all times. But it teaches me a little bit about their strange customs. And boy fights are a thing. They are a thing. It's like, apparently I've had it explained to me by my brother and by Jeffrey that boyhood is kind of like a low-level boot camp. Like a training for military action that you will most likely never see. But every single play opportunity is a chance for you to prove your alpha status over the other boys. And be rough and tumble with your general behavior. So apparently that's a thing. I don't really know. When I watch boy fights from the outside, it kind of seems like just like the wrong elbow or like the wrong move. And somebody could get gravely hurt. Or like the emotions could go just slightly over the edge for one person or the other from like angry to sad or something. Somebody could all of a sudden just start yelling or crying. Seems a little, I don't know, iffy to me from the outside. But apparently they've got it handled. They've got it under control. They're figuring it out. Boy fights. It's the learning the language of the boys. I did a lot of that following my brother around. I kind of aided my brother a little bit. You know, just trying to follow him around our whole childhood and learn how to speak his language in order to play with him. And it was definitely boy language. My brother had a club in the backyard. My father loved carpentry and he built a beautiful little playhouse for us. And I would do very lame things like pretend little house on the prairie. And Cedric was very cool because he turned it into his clubhouse and his club was called the Wolves. The wolves. It, it wasn't very intimidating. It was like 8 to 13 year old boys who really liked rollerblading and riding the wolves on things. That was pretty much it. But they had like ID cards and everything. It was legit. It was a very legit club. And I wanted to be one of the wolves. I wanted to be one of the boys. So it's, it's helped me. It has educated me as a mother of boys now all that time in childhood trying to be a tomboy definitely has been educational for me and I can use it now and at least in this household even though I am vastly outnumbered I am still the alpha right Jeff um yep of course see that's the safe answer that is the safe answer right there but then you know you like it Jeff you know you like it when I dominate you um yeah I know you're right that's going to be a totally different podcast if we do that. <laughs> That's going to be a way different kind of overshare. We won't go. We're not going to go there. That's the after podcast podcast. Oversharing is kind of what I do, though. All right. It is my thing. 
It is definitely my thing. Maybe that's why my friend suggested that I do a podcast in the first place. This is not entirely based on my ego. It is only partially based on my ego and partially based on the suggestion of my friends who are are most likely very overwhelmed by my ego. I feel like you have to wonder when your friends suggest that you do a podcast, at least I do, whether it's just like the most loving and polite, kind way to tell you that you should talk to your computer because the little red light will listen. Yeah, like, you know, we're tired. You, you rant a lot and we're tired. We're tired. But you know who could never get tired? Your computer. That's who. That's right. And that's brought us here, folks. That's brought us to me talking to you. I'm not really sure if anybody is still listening. If you are, thank you. Hi, you made it this far. You made it to the end of the first episode. That's a thing that you did. You accomplished that with me. I terribly, terribly sorry if it's been boring. If it's been boring, it's also kind of weird that you're still listening, though. So I am going to judge that a little bit. You know, whatever we can do, I guess, to stay together, to keep together, to keep our broken brains together. I have a broken brain, at least. Do you have a broken brain, listeners? Is your brain broken? I'm imagining that you're nodding right now. Or even saying, yes, Tiana, my brain is broken. In which case, if you are talking to me, your brain is definitely broken and you should seek help because I am not there. You're talking to me now, Jeff. Whoa. I know. know. That's strange. That's what I thought. Well, I'm more worried about you than myself now, so thank you for that. I am very glad that I got something out of this podcast. I appreciate it. In the meantime, this has been me rambling into the void with microphone, also known as Overshare, the podcast. Next time, I'm going to talk a little bit about the things that we do to keep ourselves sane in these insane times and how we stay healthy, right? That's a key thing in this moment in life, staying healthy. So I want to thank all of you for listening, and I want to thank you in advance for tuning in for the very next episode of Overshare. This has been Tiana. That has been Jeffrey. Hey! And we've overshared. All right, you guys, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and always remember, love always wins. Bye.